Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services and its new sister company, the Academy of Interpretation, that launched in early 2022. The Academy of Interpretation is an online education and learning platform for the language services industry. The AOI's mission is to expand access to educational courses while establishing a standard of quality and professionalism. They do this by bringing language service providers, content creators, and students together on an online platform that's accessible to everyone. The Academy of Interpretation was founded to address the widespread problem of untrained interpreters working in the field. The AOI offers professional accredited courses for interpreters and serves as a platform for organizations to refer their interpreters for training. The AOI is offering Brand the Interpreter listeners a 10% discount on all courses using the discount code AOI10BTI. This code cannot be combined with any other discounts. But check out the episode show notes for more information about the Academy of Interpretation or visit their website at www.academyofinterpretation.com. Liberty Language Services is a rapidly growing language service company that recently celebrated 11 years of providing language access services, and they are currently hiring freelance interpreters for a variety of languages. To find out more about Liberty or to apply, Check out the episode notes. Welcome back, language professionals, to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host, and I am so glad that you're joining me today. In the last episode, I shared with you that I will be hosting my first live podcast episode where I will be interviewing a group of professionals, language professionals, about a very specific and interesting and even controversial topic. And I'm sharing this with you again for two reasons. Number one, so that you can mark your calendars because this will be taking place Wednesday, July 13th at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You'll be able to catch the live session on YouTube via my YouTube channel, Brand the Interpreter, but also because three of you will have the opportunity to join the discussion live as live audience members. So be on the lookout for this event announcement on any of my social media platforms. And when you see a post, simply share it and then DM me that you're interested in being a live audience member for this particular episode. I'll make sure to connect with you with further details. Okay, now on with the show. Today's conversation was a fun conversation and our guest was full of stories to share. So I hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Yulia Spiroff is a Russian English Core CHI and WA DSHS Certified Medical and Social Services Interpreter. In her current role of supervisor at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington, 
Yulia supports the work of a team of staff medical interpreters and manages translation projects. Yulia was named 2021 Interpreter of the Year by the California Healthcare Interpreting Association. Yulia is certified as both an English and a Russian language instructor with more than 10 years of teaching experience. Yulia's passion for teaching is realized through the work she does for a nonprofit organization, Americans Against Language Barriers, where she is engaged in curriculum development and training medical interpreters as well as providing continuing education workshops for medical interpreters. Yulia is the author of the Medical Interpreter blog, which focuses on providing medical interpreters with resources and information for professional development. So, without further ado, please help me welcome Yulia Sparoff. Yulia, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me here. What an honor. Oh, please. The honor and pleasure is all mine. I'm so excited that we not only got to meet at the San Jose Chia event, but that we are also now getting the opportunity to chat with one another and have you share your story on this platform. So it's my honor and it's my pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited for today's conversation. Thank you. Me too. And I'm, yes, I'm glad that we got to see each other in 3D first or 4D. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. What a what a different experience, right? Like, you know, you you see people online and the computer and all that. Um, and then it's like, well, like I know her, even though you've never actually have met in person. I mean, what what a world we're living in now. I agree. And also because, you know, lots of people were masking at the conference and I wore a mask for a lot of the time. And so you meet somebody and they're like, huh? And you're like, it's me. <laughs> I'm Yulia. And then you put it back on. So that's also adds a little bit to the surrealism of of the whole thing. That's so true. That's so true. I do remember that taking off the taking off the mask and and saying that that's so funny. I got a lot of like, oh, you're a lot smaller than I imagined. (laughs) (laughs) And I was wearing my heels. I felt tall. (laughs) Let's get started with today's conversation. And let's begin by having you taking us back into your childhood. Talk to us a little bit about where you grew up and what that fond childhood memory or memories are that you have, would you? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was born and grew up in Russia, in Siberia, actually, the city of Novosibirsk. It's the third largest city in Russia, even though it's in Siberia. I think for many people, it's like, whoa, frozen tundra, you know, but there is a lot of snow that that thing is that part is true. And I think some of my fondest childhood memories are kind of playing in the snow because Um, We have snow from about kind of October to almost into May. So you kind of have to, (laughs) you have to, you know, make your peace with the fact that there is snow. And so, for example, for our PE classes in school, we would actually go skiing, cross-country skiing. Oh my gosh, what? (laughs) Southern California girl, and I'm like, ah, skiing for (laughs) PE. I mean, it's fun, though. It's much better than running or, or you know, anything else. Um, we just, you know, we had like a track around our campus and we just went round and round and it's cross country skiing. So it's pretty easy. And, you know, I'm not a terribly athletic person. But that is one thing I can do is cross country skiing. So that was that was always fun. Or just, you know, being building snow forts because there is so much snowfall so that you know, to clear pavements, they end up kind of shoving all the snow 
onto the side and you end up with these snow banks that are, you know, like six feet tall. And uh, that's a perfect playground, right? You can just build all kinds of snow forts and just kind of, I don't know, I've always loved playing in the snow. And here in Seattle, it snows maybe a couple times a year. And of course, everything comes to the standstill, you know, schools don't work. Um, some people can't make it into work. Buses don't run. And I mean, I understand I can't drive in the snow either, but still to me, it's always like, okay, you guys, <laughs> this is um, not that big a deal. Yeah. Right, don't come, don't right. come to California. Well, if it snows, uh, for, for, for starters, like, yeah, we definitely, we definitely wouldn't know what to do. It's like, it, wow, the world's coming to an end. It's snowing in California, not the mountains. Mountain doesn't count guys. Yeah. Yeah. But I just, I brought my winter boots from Russia. So I whip out my winter boots and I just run outside and I just play in the snow. I make snow people. I play with my dog. She loves snow. She eats it, rolls in it. So yeah. (laughs) What do you miss most about uh, Siberia? Um, The food. Um, I mean, the snow, yes, I don't miss it when it's, it's fun when it, when it falls here, you know, like here, a couple of days a year, right? It's not fun when it's there for like six months a year, and you have to walk through it. Um, the last time I was in Russia over winter, there was so much snowfalls that even experienced, you know, Russian authorities couldn't deal with the with the snow, and you had to walk snow, uh, knee deep in snow, right? So you had to factor that in. So, you know, I have a class that I have to get to. And then I'm like, it takes 10 minutes, but because there's so much snow, it's going to take me 20 minutes. And then I need some time to brush the snow off my clothes. So that I don't miss just living with the snow all of the time, but I miss the food. Um, and clearly, you know, you can get all kinds of food here, but it's just not the same. You know, my mom's cooking, my dad's cooking, my grandma's baking. I just, it's not maybe specifically Siberian, but that's something that I miss. Did you grow up in a bilingual, uh, household, Julia? I did not. Um, I did not. So I started learning English when I was uh, pretty young, but a lot of it was very rote learning, you know, kind of the grammar translation methods where I had to memorize the pronunciation table. I had to memorize the regular verbs, um, but it didn't seem to have any kind of practical application. Um, It was just another thing you had to learn. You had to learn the multiplication table at math, and then you had to learn the regular verbs, right? It was a requirement Um, to, to learn another language. Oh, is it optional? No, we had to in elementary school. We had to. And I think I needed a little extra help. So my parents sent me and my friend to a tutor. Not that, you know, what they were giving us was any different. But then when I entered into um, the high school, I went to something called a it's something close to AP English, like extra curricular English or advanced advancement placement English. And I had such an amazing teacher. Her name is Olga. And she was the first teacher I've ever met who was teaching English as a second language, kind of based on more like communicative teaching methods. And so she showed us movies. I still remember the first movie we watched. It was Kramer versus Kramer. I didn't understand much of what was going on because it's, you know, it's about um, like adults divorcing, fighting over child custody. So it's, it was something that I didn't know much about, mm. fortunately. And clearly it's all in English. 
you know, so I didn't understand much, but I was still excited. Like, hey, this is real English. They're not just giving us irregular verbs. And that's when I realized, like, you can actually use it. There is a point to learning it. Like, I never, I mean, maybe because of my field of work, but I've never used geometry or or algebra. Right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> to never either. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. But <laughs> this, you know, I could see somehow using, even if it is just to, you know, to help a tourist who's wandering around. So she was the one who really got me into learning English so that I could speak it, not just so that I could recite something from memory. Did you end up after high school um, continuing wanting to develop that? Did you go into a university and saying, I'm going to continue developing my English language? Kind of, vaguely. I like I didn't really know what I was wanted to do. I know for a while when somebody asked me what I wanted to do, I would say a tour guide because it just seemed like such a fun job. Uh, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew vaguely maybe it was something to do with English. And so the university I got into, we had quite a lot of English, but that wasn't I didn't major in it. Um, but I do remember we had really fun lessons where, we learned about the American culture. And so we would take state by state and we had to learn something interesting about its history or like landmarks. And so we're going to Oklahoma in June with my husband for a family reunion. And I was like, hey, Oklahoma, boomers and sooners. And my husband, who's from the US, he was like, what are you talking about? Who are boomers and sooners? And I was, you know, I don't exactly, I don't remember 100% what they are. I know it's something to do with pioneers, but I still remember this, right? From, <laughs> I don't even know how long ago my university was. So, yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> I wonder what they sooners. said about California. <laughs> uh, well, I, I feel like, no, I feel like I vaguely remember the gold rush and the San Francisco bridge. Like those are the two things I remember. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's not as bad. That's hilarious. So you ended up coming to Oklahoma for vacation or, or what? Not yet. I'm about to go there in June. So I'll let you know whether I've met any boomers or sooner. <laughs> Eventually though, you do come to the States, obviously from Siberia. Walk us through that journey, how that came to be. Was it love? I'm beginning yes. to like, I'm beginning to find this trend in this podcast. Like love brought a lot of people over. It was. And, you know, um, and English as well. I, you know, um, a while ago, I came into this language school um, in Russia at the time. And even now there were a lot of language schools where people learned foreign languages, but primarily English. Um, lots of people from um, international companies where either the company pays for them or they just want, you know, to advance their career or people who want to um, take exams and get into English language universities. So when I say school, it's mostly teaching adults, right? So I came to a school like that to apply for an admin position. And the director saw that my resume listed English and she said, well, why don't you try teaching English? I was like, okay. Um, I, I had no idea what I was doing. And they just immediately for my first class, they sent me to this high ranking manager at an international company. Um, <laughs> I seriously had no idea what I was doing, but I still must have taught a decent lesson because they, you know, they asked me to come back. 
And I just realized like, hey, I really like it. I'm really good at it, even without kind of knowing what I'm doing. And so I just started teaching myself, you know, what it means to teach English as a second language, teach it in a way that, you know, helps students achieve their goals, whether it's to pass an exam or, you know, a job interview or just ask for things, you know, when you go on vacations, right? Ask for a towel at the hotel. Um, So I really got into teaching. I realized I'm good at it. And my husband, who at the time was just a colleague, you know, was working at the same language school. And um, we started dating and um, he had he already had his tickets to go back to the U.S. And yeah, he he left and then he realized he just and I realized, you know, we just had to be together and I wasn't ready to come to the U.S. I was barely kind of try, starting to figure out what my profession is, where, what, where, where I'm, what I'm good at, you know. And so I was like, I'm not ready. I still have to figure this out. So he saved money for six months and he came back to Siberia for me in the middle of the winter. Um, I think when he got off the plane, his luggage took a really long time to arrive. And we asked, you know, what's going on? And they said, oh, you know, the hatch, it froze. So we're trying to defrost it. And I was like, Michael, if you want to change your mind, now is the time your luggage is still on the plane. You know, are you sure about this? You're, it was something like minus 30, I think in Celsius. So pretty close in Fahrenheit, right? But he was like, no, no, I'm here to stay. And so we both worked as English teachers. And then we decided to level up <laughs> to get serious about our professions. And we went to New Zealand where Michael completed his master's in teaching English as a second language. And I got something called CELTA, which is a certificate um, of teaching English to adults from Cambridge, uh, Cambridge Assessments. It's a branch of Cambridge University. And so then um, we were like, okay, now we have these graded skills, you know, this qualifications, where do we go next? Because we felt like we over kind of, you know, we, we've done all we could in the language school. And so we started to look for jobs abroad and my husband found a job at a Turkish university. So we moved to Turkish Mm -hmm. because in Turkey, many universities actually teach um, subjects in English. So you can get a degree in like mechanical engineering, but in English, Mm. right. Or, or marketing or something else. And not a lot of people After the high school, they have English at the level where they can actually attend lectures or write research papers. Mm -hmm. And so many universities would would host something called either foundational program or preparation program. So one year of English all day, every day, you're just learning English to try to get up to that level that you can attend university in English. And so at the time, at least, you know, that was very popular. And so my husband found a job in a program like that. And once we got there. I found a job in a different university. While I was there, I also got another qualification called Delta, which is also from Cambridge, a diploma of teaching English um, to adults. I started going to conferences thanks to a colleague who, um, this is one of the things that I learned. You know, I always thought conferences, you have to be like a professor, you have to be an academician, somebody has to invite you. And my colleague was like, no, you just you just put in a proposal and they accept it. And then you go. You don't have to be a professor or a PhD. You know, you just have to have something that you want to share with people. Right. And um, she, you know, she agreed to help me 
put together a proposal and we presented together in Greece. And I, that was the biggest thing that I learned. You know, if you have something to share, I mean, it's great if you have the foundational training and, you know, some basics, but you don't have to be some prominent, you know, veteran trainer. If you have, anybody has uh, something to share, right? That's so, a great point. I just found that out in my life too. So yes, exactly. That's what I keep telling interpreters that, you know, that when they ask me like, well, what, what else can I do? You know, I love interpreting, but I want to do something else. And I'm like, oh, go present. That's very fulfilling. That's, you know, go teach a class as long as you, I mean, I know teaching a class and presenting are a little bit different because when you present, you just kind of share what you know, and you walk away with teaching. There's a little little bit more responsibility um, of, you know, kind of giving feedback and nurturing. But anyway, so yeah. And (laughs) I went back and presented next year by myself and I presented on using WhatsApp to develop speaking proficiency and to develop listening skills. It's a, you know, it's not a very, it's not an academic topic, but that's something I used every day. And I learned that you can use it. And yeah, we were, we, we lived in Turkey for about three years, just over three years. I learned Turkish pretty well. We adopted a dog and then a coup happened or an attempted coup happened. And unfortunately, um, yeah, in 2016. And unfortunately, my university, to my surprise, ended up kind of on the wrong side of that coup. And I had to leave the country in, in a couple of hours. I had to flee pretty much. Um, yeah, that was oh, pretty... Yeah, that was that was not great when that happened. And I we had already started thinking with with Michael that, you know, we had lived in my country for a long time with close to my parents. And so we started to think, well, now we kind of want to go and live closer to his family. Um, He has a niece and a nephew that we wanted to get to know more. So we had already started thinking of coming to the U.S. and that kind of sped up. The, right. the process. Um, Very yeah, I had to. Yeah, we brought our dog here, though. It all ended well. I, you know, we were we had to spend a little time apart as we were sorting out visa and things. I went back to Siberia in the winter or close to winter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And but we ended up coming here. We stayed with my husband's parents in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, wow. Um, so okay, that, wait, yep. let's pause. So you go from you go from Siberia to Turkey. Explain to us what that was there a culture shock there? What was what was that challenge between these two places coming as a foreigner for you? you know, Aside from the language, of course, right? right? Well, it was really interesting. So we lived in a city called Kayseri. It's on the smaller side. It's pretty conservative. Um, a lot of uh, ladies wear hijabs there. And, you know, for us, we, we were guests of, even though, you know, we were guests of the city. So we were treated extremely well. And the culture there is just so friendly and so kind of personal. So you could go into a pharmacy. And if it's a pharmacy that you've been to a couple of times, You don't just buy your medications and walk away. You sit down, you have tea with the owner. They give you their baby to hold. You know, they ask you all kinds of personal questions like, well, why don't you have your own baby? You know, how old are you? Hmm, Maybe you should be having a baby. Also, I have a medication for you to lose weight. Are you interested? 
So yeah. <laughs> Sounds like going to your tia's house, your aunt's right? house. <laughs> Except that it's your local pharmacist, right? And then if, if they don't have a medication you want, like they will go and get it. Um, you know, I would go to a butcher and the butcher would be like, oh my goodness, I saw you in our neighborhood. You're our neighbor. Here is a gift. And he'd give me a tray of like sheep kidneys, for example. Wow. People were just amazing. Um, or, you know, when we started renting this house that they're called villas, but it's, you know, just a house in the mountains. And all of my neighbors were extremely curious about me as a foreigner. So, so from time to time, they would come and grab me and just bring me over and ask me all kinds of questions. Um, and just like, they were so entertained by the idea of me as, <laughs> as a foreigner living there. I, I was very, we were very happy there. Just, you know, the people were amazing. Our students were from time to time, a little challenging. Mm. Um, not everybody was there, was invested in a year of English, <laughs> but I met some of my best friends, both Turkish and American, that we still keep in touch with. Um, so the, the the a bit of a culture shock was in just what things were considered appropriate and inappropriate. Uh, for example, I was using a textbook, you know, officially published textbook, like many English language textbooks, it was quite Eurocentric. Mm. Assumed that everybody cared about, you know, the same things. Mm. Um, and we were looking at the royal ved- wedding, Prince William and Kate Middleton. So it's mm. a royal ve- wedding. As you can imagine, thing are, things are quite, you know, proper, appropriate. But at the end of the wedding, Prince William and Kate kiss. Again, this is, I don't remember if they got married at the Westminster Abbey, but Clearly, it's, you know, it's a very formal occasion. And so, of course, their kiss was very chaste. But my students were scandalized. They were like, what, teacher? What are you showing us? They're kissing. And yeah, and I was like, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that, you know, this would make you uncomfortable because this came from a textbook. <laughs> <laughs> it's in a textbook. Um, right. I, okay. <laughs> yeah, I clearly it wasn't. Or, you know, there was... Um, a story that we read about a person who has their own vineyard and and they make grapes for wine, right? And my students too, they they were very uncomfortable with discussing it. They said, no, 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 this person makes alcohol, you know, you shouldn't drink alcohol. And I think the question was something like, what are the advantages and disadvantages of this job? And clearly the authors thought, you know, advantages, you get to work outside, disadvantages, you don't always have a good harvest, right? But my students were like, absolutely no advantages. This person makes alcohol. This is a bad job, period. We will not talk about this teacher. Oh, wow. So that to me, you know, was kind of a discovery that not all textbooks are great. Sometimes you just have to create your own material. So as far as the culture shock, these these were some of the things that that were taboo, even though my students were adults, right? They, they were university freshmen. And if you compare them to, let's say, U.S. university freshmen, right? Um, they would not have a clearly a problem with, with discussing. Wouldn't blink twice with the pack right? and the, and the, when the wine deal. So, right. so then you go from that to Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Share with us the differences there. What did you feel? What did you what did you sense? What was it like for you making that transition now? Um, I think culturally, 
I really liked the people there, you know, people say that people in the South are very friendly. So that was certainly true, you know, and I love that. Um, I love that more than my American husband, the fact that, you know, at the uh, supermarket, the cashier will ask you your holiday plans, right? Or you go to a dog park and you just bond with other dog owners. I love that. I love that you say hi to people that you see on the street, even though you've never met them. The biggest shock for me was to do with driving. I had ne- I didn't know how to drive. I never had to learn. And in Turkey, you know, we could just like in Russia, we could use public transport or take inexpensive taxi or walk. And so for me to be in this in this suburban neighborhood where there are no sidewalks outside the neighborhood. So um, if I needed to go to the store, I had to ask somebody to drive me. Um, when I started doing my medical interpreter training, somebody had to drive me. Um, and when I started teaching Russian, um, as a foreign language at the same place, my father-in-law had to drive me to my interview. So I felt I'm like, I'm in my thirties, I'm a professional, I'm a grown woman. And I still feel like a child, uh, especially coming to a job interview with my father-in-law. And I couldn't ask him to wait in the car. You know, that would be mean. He gave me a ride all the way. So he came in with me. And so I was like, hi, I'm Yuli. I'm here for a job interview. This is my father-in-law. And so he's just going to sit over there. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm very lucky that when I came into a foreign country, I had, you know, people who were waiting for me. I, I was already speaking the language. I'm so I'm so fortunate, you know, compared to many others. But still, I felt pretty limited in what I could do. And I learned <laughs> I learned to drive um, using my father-in-law's yellow Ford pickup truck. And so I started driving. Very appropriate. <laughs> yes, it was giant. Uh, but, you know, he was very kind to to lend it to me and to teach me to drive. And I would show up to interpreting assignments. <laughs> was it an automatic or a manual transmission? It was automatic, fortunately. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I I would have just given up, I think, if it, if it was manual. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. These memories are so great. But then now you mentioned that you went... Uh, now you're doing the reverse. Now you're teaching Russian in in an academic setting, correct? Uh, and what was that experience like between uh, instructor and student? Um, I was actually, I was doing both at the same time. So I was still, um, so when I, let me backtrack a little bit. So when we moved to the U.S., my husband started working at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, uh, teaching English, and he saw an ad about medical a medical interpreter training program, and he sent it to me, and I was like, whoa, I had already worked as an interpreter and translator in Russia, although that happened in very much the same way as teaching happens. The director asked me if I wanted to try my, ha- my hand at interpreting. I was like, sure, sounds great. And they sent me to my first interpreting assignment that involved programming and simultaneous interpretation. Oh, boy. Right. The most easiest of right? topics and modes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, what surprises me is that I managed. I, I saw people, you know, people I was sitting in my soundproof booth, people who needed interpretation. They had headphones. And, you know, I saw them kind of nodding. Nobody was like doing this. 
So clearly I was doing something right. So that surprised me that even without knowing what I was doing, I did a good job. And then they sent me to interpret something consecutively, which if I remember correctly, was a lecture on totally thoracoscopic ablation of atrial fibrillation. Also a fun topic to interpret, but I... I, The interpreter would like to request a clarification. (laughs) So uh, atrial fibrillation is a kind of arrhythmia. Ablation is when they break up the connections that may cause this misfiring of of, um, electricity that causes fibrillation and totally thoracoscopic means that they weren't like opening up the, the, the chest. They went through... I think between ribs, if I remember correctly, laparoscopically. This was, this was back in Russia at your uh-huh. univer- university. School, language, school. language school, language school, language school, where I was working as an English teacher, and they were like, "Hey, you speak English? Why don't you go interpret?" And I was like, "Sure." Wow! Wow! <laughs> and okay. but but I have to say, I took it seriously. I I remember taking, I think, like a, almost a week off to get give myself a crash course in ablation of atrial fibrillation. Okay. And I had a chance to, what was great is that this was a lecture by a visiting professor in a large hospital. And I actually had a chance to go to the hospital, speak to other surgeons. And I said, they gave me the presentation ahead of time. And I said, okay, when I read this presentation, this is what I understood. This is how I going to say it in Russian and they would say yes. So they would say, no, 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 this is how you say it. So I did without knowing what I do and I did everything right. I prepared, I, I created a glossary, uh, memorized the glossary wow. and it actually went well. And the, the only problem I ran into when Q&A started because they would start term- using terminology that I had not memorized. Right. You had, uh, which shows you, right. Which right. shows you yeah. why you have to uh, study and, and take courses. But anyway, I was helped out by the audience. And afterwards, the um, visiting surgeon who did the lecture, he was like, wow, you did such a great job. You know, did you, do you have any medical background? And I said, no, but I really like watching Grey's Anatomy. And I really saw his respect for me plummet. But I was like, hey, I now I, I work in a hospital. I know how widely inaccurate it is about the fact that, you know, nurses run the hospital, right? You never see a nurse in Gray's Anatomy. Uh, chief of surgery does not run the entire hospital. People who you perform CPR on do not wake up with perfect hair and makeup and ask, what did I miss? You know, <laughs> who who is now dating whom? All of these things are widely inaccurate, but still it's a show where you hear a lot of terminology and, you know, and because the show is based on interns who are learning as they go. So they did a lot of teaching within the show. So they would be like cabbage stands for cardio. Hold on. Now I'm blanking. Um, (laughs) Cardio pulmonary bypass graft. I want to say. So, yeah. So these are the, and of course I would then say, oh, how would you say that in Russian? I wonder, and I would look it up. And so that's where I got a lot of my background knowledge, Grey's Anatomy or books about doctors. I really like reading uh, books written by doctors, like memoirs about how they became doctors. And so, but yeah, I feel like I lost a little bit of my credibility. So but anyway, you didn't, at that point, you didn't, you didn't look into researching to see if you could do this professionally. It was just something that was requested of you uh, by the university. And so you, you, you performed it and, and you go fast forward to 
now where you're in Tennessee and your husband sends this ad, you're saying you make that connection because you remember, yeah. right? You, you did something similar. What was that process for you? Uh, I need help. I'm scrambling to find interpreters for our board meeting. We have a staffed Spanish interpreter, but we need Korean, Farsi, and Arabic. Plus, we have a slew of IEP meetings coming up, most of them in exotic languages. I'm calling everywhere. I know what we need. I'm at the perfect translation agency at OCDE's Interpreters and Translators Conference. Certified Interpreting Services. They offer in-person and virtual services. Certified Interpreting Services? Yes. They're professional, warm, and perfect for our diverse district's needs. How do we contact them? Call or email. It's all on their website. CISinterpreters.com CISinterpreters.com That's just what we need. I'm contacting them now. Thank you for calling Seraphab Interpreting Services. This is Jasmine. It's the story of my life. You know, I get asked to do something. I turn, it turns out I'm good at it and I get serious about it and I get and, and get qualifications. Same with teaching, right? I, I got sort of pulled into it. I tried it. I was good at it. I liked it. And then I went and, you know, got my credentials. Same with interpreting. I started doing it, liked it, realized I'm good at it and started kind of teaching myself, uh, you know, attended some seminars. And then all, um, I did a lot of kind of business interpreting, you know, negotiations, visits to a concrete factory, audit at a juice factory, you know, lots of very, very different things. And medical um, assignments were my favorite, whether it's a lecture or a conference or a life surgery. So that's what I always found myself pulled into. And so, yes, when Michael sent me that flyer, I was like, wait a minute this is actually a job. And clearly it's very different from business interpretation, right? You interpret between a provider and a patient or their caregiver, but still you're in medicine, you're interpreting, you're helping someone. What? Um, so I was very excited. I immediately signed up and it, it was a great program. It was a 120 hour training program, which, yes. you know, a lot of programs, they're just 40 hours. Right. Um, and it was taught by staff interpreters at uh, uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So they had great experience that they could tell us about. Right. Um, we got to shadow staff interpreters at the hospital. Um, part of our final exam that we actually interpreted four patients at that hospital and we were evaluated. Fabulous. So it was an amazing program because I was the only Russian interpreter in the program. I actually had a language coach um, that the program hired for me. I got such a great start there. Um, and of course, you know, I did bring some of my interpreting experience with me. So I was like, this is what I want to do. I love it. Um, and as I was, you know, training, uh, the same place where the lessons took place, they were teaching foreign languages. So they asked if I'd be interested in teaching Russian. Like, sure. Um, because I had actually, right before we came to the US, I got a diploma. <laughs> I love getting diplomas <laughs> in teaching Russian as a second language. And so that kind of, that was really great. I was teaching Russian, I was learning interpreting. And then once I graduated, I started working as an interpreter. You know, all things language, whether it's helping people communicate um, as if they were speaking the same language or teaching people to communicate in another language. 
Excellent. So. Excellent. When you begin, when you begin your professional journey as a medical interpreter after your training, what were some of those challenges that you felt you needed to overcome? I think one challenge that I still struggle with um, is maintaining role boundaries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I train interpreters now. I teach a basic medical interpreter training course for a nonprofit called Americans Against Language Barriers. And, you know, um, and I like this idea that you have to uh, walk the talk, right? So if I tell my students, you have to interpret everything, even swear words. And the very next day I get sent to the uh, psychiatric ICU where the patient is just using every single swear word that exists. And I, and I'm sweating, trying to keep up. And I think to myself, walk the talk, Yulia, you, you said you have to interpret everything. So similarly, I always say like, you know, you have to maintain your own boundaries, but that is really, really hard. You know, there was one case where I was interpreting for a victim of domestic violence and their child. They had to stay in a shelter. Um, they had very little by way of money or things. And I remember the time was around holidays where they were kind of sad about the fact that they would have to spend the holidays that way. And I just felt so helpless. My first instinct was to like run to the store, get some presents for the child, you know, I don't know, do something. And it was so hard to be like, okay, Yulia, you are here as an interpreter. You have a very important role to play because they the they really were in a place where they needed to have a safe space to tell their story to really you know figure out what to do next and i ended up developing a good rapport with them and interpreting for the child as well as they went on to have therapy and i thought you know because i i maintained those professional boundaries i was still compassionate you know Um, but they now feel safe with me as a professional and um, to, to even entrust me with interpreting for their child, you know? And so I thought I'm not helpless. I'm, I, I may not be giving them material things, but I'm giving them my time, my skills, my professionalism. And so that's, that's the lesson I learned that, you know, when you look at people and, interpreting is a helping profession, right? We, we, we always want to help. And, you know, when I look at patients that I interpret for who are very sick, or they may be at the end of life, um, or something else happened to them, you know, I can't fix that. I can't fix their health. I can't stop them from dying. I can't, you know, make it so this terrible thing never happened to them. But I can, what I can do is I can give them a voice, I can give them a way to communicate with the people who potentially can help with some of the things. So that's what I tell myself when I feel like I'm not doing anything. I am helping. I'm helping by being in this room, right? Or, um, or yeah. over the phone. And so I think that- sometimes that's what happens is that we tend to think that help is, you know, it goes in only one direction. You know, you have to be an active participant in the sense of, you know, as actually physically giving something tangible, doing something physically when, when in fact help comes in so many different ways, you know, it it could be a simple smile, you know, as you, as you cross a complete stranger and you brighten up their day and that has, has ultimately helped 
you know, another individual. So that that's actually a very great point in that this is a profession that where many of us start because we want to give back to our community because we want to help. And, um, and oftentimes that role boundary piece is probably, I would say, I would agree with you, uh, Yulia, that it's uh, one of the most difficult parts in changing about how we approach the job or the work that we do, because we're always thinking, you know, I need, I need to step in, right. I need Mm -hmm. to, I need to do something about this. Um, And so we want to offer help in a way that that seems more direct. And we're not even thinking about, I am helping uh, exactly with everything that you just uh, shared. I'm helping with my professionalism, with giving them voice, with being trained so that they can have uh, a direct voice. That's, that's, I, I, I feel like you hit a very good point there with regards to the role boundary aspect. I'm interested in knowing when you first started, because it seems like a lot of opportunities were coming your way, which is so great, but there are also moments where you took it upon yourself to do the training, to look for more things. Did you start as a freelancer or were you immediately, you know, as an employee? Great question. Yeah, I started as a freelancer and um, (laughs) driving around in my pickup truck. Um, In Nashville, there isn't a huge Russian language community. So I wasn't very busy and I immediately started. I always want to do something more, right? If I'm teaching, I also want to to present at conferences. I also want to, I used to have a blog um, with like tips for English teachers. Same here. I was like, okay, I'm only just starting out, but I did get this amazing training. Um, I, I want to share things. And um, I went to my very first conference. Um, I think it was maybe right after we graduated from the course um, in Alabama. And um, I, one of the presentations that I really liked was about uh, self-care. And I went back and immediately I've been thinking about a blog and I was like, okay, this is it. This will be my first article. This will be my inspiration. And I I started a blog and I wrote that article about self-care and I kind of thought about my experience as a freelancer, because as a freelancer, Yes, you choose your own hours. You you can run errands in between um, your appointments, right? If if it's a sunny day out and you didn't get any jobs, you can be like, oh well, I'll go swim into the lake with my dog, right? All of the things that you cannot do as an employee most of the time. But then it can be a very lonely profession. Um, I think I was telling you at the conference, um, I used to interpret at this facility a lot as a freelancer and the agency ended up writing us and saying, interpreters, stop holding up the line at the reception. Stop spending so much time talking to the to the front desk personnel because poor, lonely interpreters who, you know, if you if you're a freelancer, you don't really have colleagues that you see day to day. You may be seeing them on platforms such as Facebook or you know, at um, interpreting professional organizations, but you don't see somebody day to day. You see your patients, but we can't really form, you know, deep, meaningful relationship with patients, right? We have to maintain our role boundaries. Um, The staff, you also see them, but you mostly interpret for them. And clearly you can't chat with them as you're interpreting, right? So yeah, poor, lonely interpreters were just hanging out with the front desk people. And and I'm guilty of that too. I was like, goodness, (laughs) I know I did that too, because they're, 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 um, um, 
their captive audience. They're sitting there, they can't escape you. So they have to listen to how your weekend went and what you think about everything else. This is so probably that, not the best example, but it's like, I'm imagining like they were like the bartender hearing everyone's story. <laughs> Right. When there is a line behind you, there are people who are trying to check in and you're like, so did you see the game? <laughs> Your hair is different. Do you have a dog? I have a dog. So, you know, you just, we, we all have to talk to someone, right? I'm an extrovert. I suffer. I'm guilty of that it, too. <laughs> exactly. So that was one, I thought, challenging aspect of it. And also self-care because when you're, when your income is kind of in your hands, right? You're always like, Hey, will you take this assignment? Yes. Will you take this assignment? Yes. And then I'm like, wait a minute, when am I going to eat? And if I don't eat, I became, I become hangry. I'm not a fun person when I'm hungry. Um, if I'm dehydrated, that's one of the biggest triggers for my migraines. So I was, I got to think about this, right? Great point. And then, and then when it comes to vicarious trauma, you know, I read about, I read about the fact that interpreters can suffer from something called modified survivor's guilt. So survivor's guilt, you know, is when somebody ends up dying tragically, maybe like, you know, at war or somewhere else. And the people who survived may feel guilty for surviving. Right. Well, in modified survivor's guilt is, you know, you're interpreting for somebody and they're very sick or something else is happening to them. And you're like, man, but I'm okay, right? I, I I don't have that particular illness or something else. Like, what do I have to complain about? And you kind of start to feel guilty for being okay. Um, and that certainly ha- happened to me. Um, and we all have our different triggers, right? For some people, it's children. For me, it's often families that, you know, either siblings or parents, because all of my family members are far away. They're all in Russia, right? So I always think about like, man, what if it was like my mom or my sister? How would I handle this? I'm so far away. Um, You know, I live in terror of them falling sick. So of course, that is my biggest trigger. And I remember going to, um, I was interpreting at a facility that it's near a lake. And as a freelancer, you know, I never had like a nine to five day there. I would have maybe four hours in the morning and then four hours in the afternoon. If I had enough time, I'd go home. But uh, that particular day, I had like a couple of hours and I thought, I don't want to go home driving. Why don't I rent a kayak and I go kayaking? I don't know what possessed me. I'm like I said, not an (laughs) athletic person, had never been kayaking, but it just looked so attractive. So I was like, why not? Still don't know how I, you know, how I did that. But anyway, so I planned for this. I brought a change of clothes. um, And um, the last appointment that I interpreted at right before going the person had so much going on. I felt so sad for them. And so when I left the appointment, I thought, am I, I'm just going to go kayaking? Like this person is experiencing so much hardship. I just heard about it. I interpreted about it. And I'm just going to go kayaking. Like I don't have a care in the world. I'm going to take pictures with the space needle. How dare I, you know, what's wrong with me? Don't I have a heart? And I almost didn't go, but then I thought, okay, if I don't go kayaking, is this going to help this person? No, you know, like it's, it's, it's not, there's absolutely no way that this will somehow affect their life. Right. Uh, However, if I don't take care of myself, if I don't let myself go and get some exercise, breathe some fresh air, I can burn out. I can see that happening. So I need this and I didn't feel like doing it. 
but I did it. And it was terrifying because there were all of the seaplanes landing, but that really took me out of my head because I was thinking, if I fall into water, you know, how will I go interpreting? And, you know, all of this practical things, you know, my thighs are on fire. Why did I think this was a good idea? <laughs> what was I thinking? Uh, why am I, you know, in the middle of the day, business day, no less, and I'm kayaking? Uh, I've lo- but- you're like, I've lost it. I've, I've lost my mind. <laughs> what is going on, right? But, but I, you know, and I was glad that I did it because like I said, it took it out of my, took me out, out of my head. And I learned a good lesson that you have to take care of yourself. Not taking care of yourself is not going to help anyone. Um, you're no good to your patients if you're hungry and, and you know, you're irrit- irritated or if you got a migraine because you didn't hydrate and now you can't really concentrate, right? So it's great point. Why, why did I start talking? Okay, so yes, because my first article, first article <laughs> in the blog was about self-care And so I started freelancing and I started working on my blog and just kind of writing about the things that I personally learned from and doing research, you know, and this is what this article says about self-care. So amazing. It's amazing because your journey does begin as something that's uh, having to do with language. Uh, Funny thing is that, you know, you talked about being potentially a tour guide. Um, (laughs) And little did you know that that was in a way going to show up in your life, just not necessarily in the way in which, you know, you perhaps pictured it. And life events take you from one place to another and you end up freelancing and you end up with these experiences. If we fast forward to the present moment, Yulia is now the supervisor at a medical center in Seattle, Washington, right? (laughs) And so now you're no longer freelancing. Now you're in charge of, you know, this unit. Talk to us a little bit about how that opportunity came to you and what you're working with, with the staff that is in this, in this medical center. Yeah. It's all about, it's all because of Cindy Rowe. Oh, Cindy. Cindy Yes. I, when I was still in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, when I was doing my course, she had come to do the training of trainers and she did a training for all of us on interpreting in mental health. And I mean, she's such a good trainer and she's so knowledgeable and I just loved her so much. And my teachers at the, you know, at the medical interpreter training course introduced me to her. And so we connected. And when I was moving to Seattle, my husband got a job here in Seattle. And when he told me my first thought was Grey's Anatomy. Yes, of course, we're moving to Seattle. No question. My dream. And, My yeah, dream. exactly. And I knew, you know, I'm 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 a reasonably sane person. I know that they really film in Hollywood. But fun fact, my hospital where I work is actually a prototype for the Grey's Anatomy Hospital. Stop it. Yes, because it's the it's a level one trauma center, you know? We need to get and in Meredith's- touch with that one doctor that that, <laughs> Mc- that asked you about his that. name. Let him know. <laughs> Do you see what happens? <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, so I got in touch with Cindy and I said like, Hey, I'm moving to Seattle. What is that like? Because in Nashville, there isn't a huge Russian community. There is, I think two agencies that, that I worked with and that's pretty much it. Right. What's Seattle like? And I hadn't realized at the time that it wasn't just Cindy wrote a trainer that gave us a good class. She's the Cindy wrote. She's (laughs) 
the veteran of the field. She's the national level, you know, language access consultant. I, I hadn't realized. I just thought, oh, it's, you know, this nice person that I met. And she was so kind. She wrote me a letter full of pointers. And then we met when I came here. And when she learned that I have this extensive teaching background, she said, why don't you, you know, have you thought about interpreter training? Because um, at NOTIS, Northwest Translator and Interpreter Society, uh, we always, you know, we put on training, we always need trainers. And I was like, really? But I'm relatively new to the medical interpreting profession, right? Shouldn't I be a professor? <laughs> you know, that imposter syndrome, right? Nice. Shouldn't I be are you sure? And she was like, well, hey, do you, you know, you have your training, you have some experience, you know what you're talking about. And I'm really grateful to her for kind of, you know, just really living that principle of lifting other people up and thinking uh, yes. of the profession. My you favorite know, she, people. Yes. Absolutely. I, I, all, I try so hard to, to you know, to, to be like her and to do that for other people because yes. she was thinking, hey, the profession needs more trainers yes. and it needs more, maybe somebody with a different perspective, with a different lived experience, different language. So I, you know, I, I got into interpreter training here in Washington for Nautis. Um, and I started you know, the blog, I, I do the blog, I got into basic medical interpreter training, we developed a program for Americans Against Language Barriers. In addition to teaching, I now work on curriculum development and quality assurance with my colleague Darren Reed. Um, and so, but I've always, you know, I, I came to Harborview, the hospital uh, where I now work to interpret as a freelancer. And I was always like, whoa, you know, it's a level one trauma center. Every elevator has a code blue button. Um, mm. There are helicopters landing all of the time. So I was always in awe. It's the Harborview, the, forget Grey's Anatomy. It's, right. it's uh, the only level one trauma center for the WAMI region, which is Washington, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, I was just, to me, it was, you know, the living legend. And so when I got an opportunity to interview for the supervisor position, I could not, I, I just could not believe it, that I would get to work at Harborview, wow. <laughs> you know, and I am, uh, I'm a supervisor. So I, we have about 35 interpreters. So I supervise um, about 17 of them. So not all of the interpreters and I manage translation projects and because it's a level one trauma center, our interpreters work with, some very serious, you know, cases. And I just feel so honored that I have an opportunity to support them in this work and also support all of the amazing medical staff. I'm so grateful, you know, when they call and say, hey, we have this patient and this is a challenge that we're having in communicating with them. You know, what can you, can you think of something that we can do, right? And I'm like, um, I mean, I know that this is something that that should happen, right? But still, every time it happens, I'm like, thank you so much for thinking of that, for not giving up, for just caring, you know, I I love it. And, and with translation projects too, you know, the fact that somebody thinks, okay, this should be accessible to everyone, you know, I just love that. And I really appreciate our team who is so patient with working with translations and they have to work, you know, one day they would be translating something to do with 
brain surgery. And then another, it would be something about financial applications. So they're just amazing professionals. Not only are you so involved now, obviously, because you're, you know, uh, it directly involved with all the internal aspects of managing translation and interpreting systems within, uh, you know, a, an organization. Um, you're also involved in all these other, uh, other components for advocacy of the profession and things of that nature. So, you know, now you're like, you're so, so involved, uh, directly involved in all different components of the profession. What would you say would be something that you would still like to very much see, perhaps change uh, that currently exists in the industry, or maybe does not, that you would like to say, I wish I could see this more in the industry or less? Great question. Well, I can say on a very local level, I very much want to see this, you know, the importance of language access, whether it's interpreting to people with limited English proficiency, whether it's, you know, um, access for people who are deaf or blind, access in healthcare, whether it's translation, when it's appropriate, when it's not, you know, I just want this to be taught from very early on in medical school, in internship and residency. And me and my my boss, the director of the department, Yvonne, you know, we're very proactive in suggesting that we do presentations for incoming, because it's a teaching hospital, incoming medical residents or, or interns or students. Um, and some um, department, departments are wonderful at reaching out to us. Uh, but I want to see more of that. I'm, I want this to be less of, oh, that sounds like a great idea to more like this is a curriculum requirement. So mm-hmm. anytime I get asked by, you know, medical, you know, to talk to medical students or, or residents, they get really excited and they're like, oh, thank you so much for doing that. And I'm like, no, 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 thank you for doing that. How long do you need me for an hour or two? I can be there all day. You know, <laughs> what do you want? Do you want slides, exercises? You know, I'll, I'll be there with bells on just, you know, I'm so excited that you want to know about this. So I, I really want to see more um, awareness of this, that you're not doing this to be nice. You're doing this because act language access is a human right. It's a civil right. You're doing this because you need this, but the patient also needs this. Yeah, that's such a great point because I feel like there's so many other topics that have to do more with the human side of the professions. You know, that's uh, everything's very much focused on yes, those hard skills, but then there's the, these all these other components that make you a well-rounded professional. So in the in the medical field, for instance, whether it's you know our nurses, you know our doctors, or you know physicians, specialists, things like that. You know, it's topics such as nutrition, mental health, right, um, culture right? Language access, things like that, that it's like, okay, you've got everything else down, but then you're dealing with humans. So it's not like you're dealing with a robot. So how are we going to integrate the human components of the profession as well? So that's excellent point with, with bringing in some of these topics that it's not a, it would be nice. Like you said, that, that it, it should be a curriculum requirement. 
Yulia, as we come to a close uh, in our conversation, I'd like to give the opportunity for our listeners to hear about, you know, a little bit more about what your recommendations would be, particularly as they're entering the profession, if they're wanting to specialize or perhaps combine, you know, just their interests that they'd like. What is a recommendation that you can give language professionals, uh, whether they're new or seasoned uh, in this particular field? Yeah. Um, good question. I would say definitely get some training. And I know it's it's probably a little rich coming from me uh, as the person who first tries to do something and then gets trained. <laughs> but I, you know, I did get trained. I did it later rather than sooner, but I did did do it. And so if you already have an interpreting background, that's great. It will serve you well. But uh, now you need to learn how everything works in the world of medical interpreting. If you're coming from, let's say, court interpreting perspective, you will learn that ethics are a little bit different, right? Sometimes significantly different. You will learn that you do not have equipment (laughs) for simultaneous interpretation. And so sometimes your simultaneous will happen in the middle of the psych ward, for example, within less than ideal environment in terms of, you know, how noisy it is and what else is going on. Um, And I think depending on where you are in your medical kind of knowledge, I think building up, it's great, you know, do training, do continuous education. I still, there are so many things that I, I learn and I know nobody can know everything. Um, Right. So I, I enjoy learning so much and I just renewed my certification for both CC, course CCHI and then also here in Washington, we have DSHS, Medical Interpreter and Social Interpreter Certification. So both of mine just got renewed. So I have to get credits all over again. Right. And I was like, yes, you, you know, I, I get to learn more. Um, so continuing education, but also I really like, as you, as I mentioned earlier, learning from, from other sources that are not like structured, sit down and attend the class, but learn from TV shows, books, podcasts. Actually, on my blog, I have several articles devoted to that. Like, hey, you spend a lot of time driving. Why not listen to a medical podcast? Why not listen to, you know, memoirs of a doctor who became a cancer patient themselves? You're going to learn so much about the healthcare and doctors and terminology, you know, I constantly listen to podcasts and or books like that. I just finished one about a doctor who talked about her journey on training um, in Texas um, on how she, you know, uh, got her medical training. So it's just so fascinating. So I think, you know, as long as you, especially when you watch Grey's Anatomy, you take it with not just a grain of salt, but like a rock of salt, um, you can still learn a lot. You can, you can still learn a lot. Yeah. It could be fun. I love that. Yeah. So true. And a friend of mine is now trying to take their court interpreter exams and they asked me for recommendations. And I was like, okay, the TV show Lincoln lawyer, the good wife, you know, I just, I just read all, all of these TV shows where I didn't end up going into court interpreting. I took the initial written exam and I will tell you the majority of my knowledge came from those TV shows. There I you know have it's, it. it's unconventional, but that's what I recommend. Just get into either Netflix or podcasts or books, and this will be a very enjoyable way of learning. 
Yeah, it's about the exposure in that case. So it, yeah, you're right. It's an enjoyable way of learning. It's a, an out of the box, out of the classroom type of setting, which, you know, that that takes its its place as well within the training. But you know, if you want to further continue and speed it up, right? Something like that, then then absolutely like that's that's an unconventional way and a fun way because you're also doing things that you enjoy. It's almost like I think of it like when you just get out of an interpreting assignment. And rather than us not listening to anything so that we can kind of get out of the interpreting mode, if you, if you turn on something that, that is about conversation, what are we doing? <laughs> We're interpreting. We're interpreting. The other day I, I was, I got back in my car after an interpreting assignment and I, I had, I had it automatically on the, you know, one of my audio books and I was interpreting the, you know, what the author was reading and I, I had to stop myself and I'm like, Hey, pay attention to the, I'm still in interpreting mode. (laughs) I'm so glad I'm not alone in that. Yeah, exactly. It is a fun, great way. Yulia, I I very much appreciate your time and the opportunity to to chat and have you share the story here. And, you know, we're getting ready to to close up our episode, but I don't want us to leave without the audience finding out more about you and about the work that you do. Yeah. Um, um, I have a blog. It's called medicalinterpreterblog.com. Um, so I, I there's a section about me, but I also post resources for interpreters. Get connected to me on LinkedIn. Um, I really love connecting to people. And um, then, like we were talking earlier in the episode, maybe meeting them at a conference. Um, you're welcome to follow me on Facebook if you're ready to see a lot of pictures of my dog. <laughs> My dog eating pineapple, my dog rolling in the snow. If you're into Labrador slash golden retriever mixes. Yeah. Um, are you sure it's your Facebook? <laughs> uh, maybe I should, maybe she should have, uh, my dog should have her own Facebook, but I post about what I love. So sometimes it's interpreting. Sometimes it's my dog. <laughs> Great point. So yeah, but, but blog, LinkedIn, um, those are my professional social platforms, social platforms. And I'll make sure to include uh, those links on the episode notes so that you can contact Yulia in whichever, which way platform you, you so choose, but LinkedIn, I'm always preaching about LinkedIn and it's a, you know, it's a very great platform as well. Yulia, again, I want to thank you for the opportunity. I very much appreciated having heard how uh, people in your life sometimes show up uh, and guide you and potentially even highlight the strengths that we may not necessarily recognize as strengths. We may perhaps see them as just they just are. And um, and not only did they show up in your life to 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 sort of point you in, in a direction, but that you took that action because there, there could be people that show up and mention it and, and one might dismiss it as something that someone just said. Uh, but in your case, not only did you take it in, you actually took action, looked into it, further developed it. And that has led you, those choices and actions have led you to where you're at now and uh, making an even bigger impact for even more people. And now coming to the show, connecting with an even bigger audience and knowing how they can connect with you and potentially even support you in the work that you do. So thank you once again for the opportunity for sharing your story here on this platform. And I look forward to seeing you at the next conference. Thank you. Thank you, Maria, so much for having me here and for your kind words. I think you summed it up really great about the people in our lives who seen us something that we don't always see and just 
helping us to to see it. So um, I aspire I aspire to that. And you are one of these people, Mireya. You're just you know giving us platform and shining a light on our profession, whether it's medical interpreting or educational interpreting. So thank you for that as well. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.